This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. We need a deeper point than simply this is the way that Christians behave. We need something more than mere social mores. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my co-host and friend, Dr. James Dalzell. And we are here today to talk about an important topic, the topic of sanctification. And our guest, we're privileged to have Dr. Michael Allen, who serves as the John Dyer Trimble Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And he's also the author of a recent book entitled Sanctification. And if you'd like to stay tuned afterwards, we'll give you an opportunity to get a free copy of that book. But Dr. Allen, thanks uh, so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I wanted to begin by asking a little bit about the genesis of the book. I wonder if you could talk us through maybe some perceived uh, misunderstandings of sanctification that you saw either within the church or perhaps within the academy that you wanted to particularly address with this book. What, what, was, the, what was the impetus for writing this? Sure. There was a couple levels at which I, I thought about writing it. One was personal. I just finished a volume on justification, so sanctification seemed the appropriate next step. But there was also a public sense that thought about the Christian life and discipleship and the doctrine of sanctification was being addressed in lots of ways, wide and near, but sometimes, perhaps often, from a, an unfortunate angle. In the wider theological world, there's been a lot of emphasis on in recent years, particularly through the influence of folks like Stanley Hauerwas, on virtue and on community and on the role of church in shaping Christian ethics which is good, but I've felt has oftentimes lacked enough language about Jesus and about God's action in shaping our ethical lives. And then more nearly to my own context in the Reformed and Evangelical world, through the influence of figures like Tully and Chavigin and others, sanctification has been talked about at great length, particularly its relationship to justification and Christian freedom. And there's been a lot of language there about Christ and his role in sanctification, but sanctification in this schema is oftentimes reduced to remembering what Christ has already done for you and to accepting your justification. And so against that kind of reductive Christology, I wanted to suggest that we do need to think sanctification as a gift of Christ, but as a gift of the whole Christ and to pay attention to all that he does, past, present, and future for his people. Dr. Allen, as you uh, set out to orient readers in the introduction to your book, you offer three contexts Trinity, covenant, and the double grace in Christ. And I take it that with this emphasis on Trinity and on Christ, uh, this is part of your attempt to to correct or add balance to Hauerwas and others. Um, but let, I want to first ask about the Trinity, or maybe you want to address those three together. We don't ordinarily think immediately of the Trinity when we think of sanctification. We ordinarily think of transformation, law-keeping, good works, but perhaps the Trinity isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Why is that one of your orienting contexts? Yeah, well, you know, I, 
I take it that as we look at the Bible, in particular the way that holiness and being set apart or being sanctified is described, that it's really bound up with and it's it's for the sake of being with the triune God. So I, I think of a text like Leviticus 10, 10, where you read you're to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And that notion not only of being pure, but of actually being holy and not merely common, of being set apart and not merely ordinary, is so that the triune God can indwell, inhabit the life of his people. And so sanctification is really bound up with the idea of fellowship, not just union, but communion with the triune God. And uh, I think there's a irreducibly personal and relational importance there. That's where the, the actual energy and force comes from for the life of discipleship. Uh, Jesus tells us, you know, of course, that finding a remarkable treasure in the field, uh, the disciple would willingly go sell all that he has to have it. If we, if we somehow miss the personal nature, the captivating reality of fellowship with the triune God, I don't think we're going to find taking up our cross and following him to be an appetizing call. And so uh, I, I do want to start with that notion that we're made for the triune God. We're made to find our rest in him. And that's the underlying energy and motivation for everything that's going to follow. Maybe this is what sets sanctification apart from merely good deeds or, or what Aristotle might have called civic righteousness. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is that what you're getting at with this? That there's a, God, there's a Godwardness that makes sanctification something other than just good neighborly relations. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you could consider the way the Westminster Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism will describe Christian good works as opposed to merely civic good works and Aristotle or other schemas. And I'll talk about how good works in a, a Christian frame of reference are done to God's glory. They're done by faith and they're done according to the law of God, not mere human tradition. And it seems to me that, you know, while civic righteousness may well and oftentimes does accord with objective standards of behavior, thankfully, and we ought to be grateful for that, it's not done for God's glory, nor is it done out of deep trust or reliance on the triune God, the sense that one is made to find one's rest and satisfaction in Him alone. So there is just this irreducibly covenantal and communion-oriented nature to what it means to to lead a life of cross-bearing, of discipleship, of moral transformation by the Spirit's power. That was going to be my next question, your other orienting context, that of covenant. How mm. is it that covenant as a, as a biblical concept gives, gives a, a framework and an understanding to sanctification? What is, what is covenant among all the different motifs in Scripture? What is covenant uh, that yeah. it gives us an understanding of sanctification? Yeah, I mean, we could probe to particular covenants and, and specific texts, but maybe it's more helpful simply to think slightly abstracted and, and more broadly. If if sanctification is about the kind of set-apartness and distinction that makes communion with God possible, then I think we could say that covenant is the ordering and structuring of that kind of communion. At its most basic level, a covenant is simply an ordered relationship of some sort. 
And it's a remarkable reminder for us, consumerists and idolaters that we are, um, that God orders the way we relate to him. You don't come to God happenstance or willy-nilly. You don't come to God on your own terms, but that God unilaterally, uh, sovereignly decides how he will be approached, uh, how his presence will be mediated, how it will be enjoyed. And covenant language throughout the Bible and its various administrations is going to sketch the way in which we as creatures have to embrace that ordering by faith. That's why David can express such delight in the Torah or instruction of God. It shows him how to be with God rightly. And and he's embracing his creatureliness and he's embracing God's fatherly guidance in teaching and instructing and giving him that clarity about how to be with God rightly. Uh, we don't like that. We're sinners this side of Adam. And in particular, we're moderns this side of the Enlightenment. We tend to think that we ought to stand up and sort of look around and make our own path and be with who we'll be and, and relate to them as we will relate to them. And so there is something of a spiritual repentance and a faith that's called for, even in embracing the covenantal frame in which relating to God is always going to take. To your other orienting context, the, the double grace in Christ, how does Christ specifically help us to live in covenant in a way that we actually come to, in righteousness and holiness, enjoy fellowship and communion in the presence of God? Yeah, I, you know, perhaps the most quoted line in my book is a line from Augustine's oft-forgotten text on faith and works, which no one reads. But it's a remarkable text about how you preach the gospel. And in one passage, he says this, he says, this is to preach Christ, to say not only what one must believe about Christ, but also how one must live who wishes to be joined to the body of Christ. To say, in fact, everything that one must believe about Christ, not only whose son he is, from whom he takes his divinity, from whom his humanity, what things he suffered and why, what his resurrection means to us, what's the gift of the spirit, which he's promised and given to believers, but also what kind of members of whom he's the head, he desires, he forms, loves, sets free, and leads to eternal life and glory. As we think about the double grace, it's simply a, a prompt, a tool uh, that Calvin gives us that he finds in earlier theologians like Augustine here to re remind us that the Bible tells not only of what Christ has suffered and experienced once for all on our behalf in the first century, but that Christ continues to act as prophet, priest, and king, and that he not only desires change in us, but he forms us, he loves us, he sets us free, and he leads us to that eternal life and glory. And so there's an alertness there to not just the past tense of the gospel in the accomplishment of redemption, in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, uh, and not only to the future action of the gospel, Christ speaking on our behalf on Judgment Day, but also to the present tense of the gospel, that Jesus is not on some sort of divine sabbatical or vacation, but that he is active at the right hand of the Father on our behalf, and that he is just as involved by his Spirit in applying his salvation and in transforming us as he was in accomplishing it and in justifying us. 
Dr. Allen, you, you mentioned at the beginning wanting to distinguish the approach you took in this book from some other contemporary approaches, one of which had a more uh, communal look at, at sanctification. I, I wonder if you could tie it back in, though, because, of course, in your book, you're not uh, denying the communal component of our sanctification. So, I wonder if you could explain how what you've just been talking about and the way you approach things leads to or or sort of kind of filters through some of the the communal aspects of our sanctification yeah um i mean the communal angle of being sanctified is is absolutely crucial that it's precisely in christian community rooted and grounded in love that we are being built up in Jesus Christ. And so we can read texts like Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4 and see that the only way onward and upward to Christian maturity is not just by God's grace, but by God's grace that's provided through means of grace in Christian community. That said, I do want to push back on folks following Stanley Harawas and others who would basically root ethics in the life of Christian community and in, in really nothing deeper. I think particularly in in our post-Christian moment where sort of the the social capital and force of kind of a Christendom complex is on the wane or has eclipsed in places here in the modern West, we need to realize we need a we need a deeper point than simply this is the way that Christians behave. We need something more than mere social mores. We need to be able to demonstrate theologically uh, why the way the cross is beautiful and appealing and, and right, true, good, and beautiful precisely because it's the way that Jesus is actively transforming his people, not merely that it's the way that Christians of this denomination or of that stripe behave. And so I think we need to root things ultimately in the action of God and in the present activity of Christ by his Holy Spirit. Now, that activity works through means, just as as God's activity in creation would take the form of, of speaking through his word or of legislating later through his servant Moses. So now, God's grace does come through instruments and means of grace, and communal life is crucial. And as you think about Colossians 3 and where the Word of Christ dwells richly, that kind of rich excess that leads to God's inhabiting and dwelling amongst us, it's invariably communal. It's, it's together with our brothers and sisters in the, in the life of the people of God. But it's a life with the people of God that finds its power source always deeper and more fundamentally in the the present agency of the triune God. Last question. I think we could continue to talk about this. I'd love it if we could continue to talk about this, but last question, just for the sake of time, people come at this issue of sanctification at different points and, and certainly they're at different levels of their their Christian life. I wonder if you could recommend some other books. We would commend, just just to say this very clearly, we would commend to all our listeners Michael Allen's book, Sanctification. But I wonder if you yourself have other books that you'd recommend that have been helpful to you or that perhaps might strike at a slightly different level than, than your own work here. Sure. Let me uh, suggest some old ones and then a couple more recent volumes as well. Um, from sort of the classical Christian tradition, I would highly recommend Augustine's very short book on faith and works. I would highly commend 
the small excerpt from Calvin's Institutes that oftentimes has run under the title, The Golden Book, What of the Christian Life? There's a great new edition called A Little Book on the Christian Life. It's chapters six through 10 of book three of the Institutes. And for those who are really adventurous, the third older book I'd highlight is John Owen's 700-page Pneumatologia. It's on the works of the Holy Spirit, the person and the works of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. It's, it's remarkable. The fourth would be a, a volume from a man, very unknown, misunderstood, uh, named Edward Fisher called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. That's a remarkable sketch of Puritan era thought on sanctification, similar to Owen's. And then in more recent years, I would just mention two volumes. Uh, G.C. Burkauer's Faith and Sanctification is a short, beautiful book addressing a number of key issues in the area. And then John Webster's little book, Holiness, is a dense read, but for my money, a remarkably insightful read on not just our holiness as individual Christians, but the holiness of God himself, the holiness of his church, and even the holiness of theology and of theological study. It's a great entryway into all those topics. So those would be uh, four older and, and two more recent volumes that would be really worthwhile for folks new and old to the subject. And just to make it an even and and symbolically perfect seven, we would also recommend your book on sanctification, oh, entitled Sanctification by Michael Allen. Hey, thanks so much for giving us your time today. This was a really helpful conversation. And again, we, we are grateful for your ongoing work, your written ministry, and also your teaching as well. So thanks. Oh, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much. So James, one of the things that I was curious about, I mean, one the two the two views of sanctification, the two approaches to sanctification that he distinguished his book from strike me as ones that, you know, we're familiar with in kind of academic settings. Do you think that those two views have real purchase in the church? I mean, is your sense that Christians are struggling with those two things that he's trying to uh, push back against? Maybe it's, it's hard to say. Cause I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure I move broadly enough to say, I know what Christians are, generally right, right, struggling right, right. with. I do think that I can get a little window in on this just with regard to even our academic setting where we do get a lot of a big cross section yeah. of students and I think there's general there's general fuzziness as to exactly what sanctification or holiness entails. I think that it often ends up looking like a, a kind of communally oriented emotivism mm-hmm. where spirituality maybe more even than holiness holiness gets confused with yeah. a kind of with a kind of extroverted version of spirituality and i'm not i'm not sure that there's clarity as to whether in fact i'm growing in holiness mm-hmm. what what does that look like and and ordinarily that's not referenced to the holiness of god right. himself per se or even to the holiness and sanctification of Christ. In uh, Dr. Allen's book, he has this, um, he has a statement from Calvin's Institutes. And I'll read it briefly because I think yeah, it's really yeah, helpful. Yeah, no. And it, it really unpacks what he's doing yeah. in pointing us to Jesus. Calvin says, therefore, the joining together of head and members, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union, are accorded by us the highest degree of importance so that Christ, having been made ours, 
makes us sharers with him in the gifts with which he was endowed. We do not therefore contemplate him outside ourselves from afar or in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us, but because we put on Christ and are so engrafted into his body, in short, because he deigns to make us one with him. I think that idea of union with Christ Mm -hmm. and that my holiness is actually the holiness of Jesus being reproduced in me Mm -hmm. by the work of the Spirit in mystical union, I think perhaps that note, uh, while it has been begun to be rehabilitated it seems like in recent years we're seeing more and more on that i think still generally for those who've not bumped into that literature right yeah there can be this idea that holiness just looks like some kind of very extroverted Mm. almost theatrical type demonstration of sincerity or something like that in worship yeah and that has all kinds of effects i mean it has effects on people who who don't who temperamentally don't express themselves in that way and sort of see everyone else. But I think you're right. I think the two things that that struck me reading the book were one, his emphasis on holiness and then the union with Christ. And maybe the union with Christ thing is getting a little more play today, but holiness, I, I remember hearing J.I. Packer once say that when he first became a Christian, that was a, a huge topic. How do we pursue holiness? And he said, now the topic among his students is how do I know the will of God? And it's interesting to see that turn because you're right, living the Christian life oftentimes isn't talked about in terms of holiness or in terms of union with Christ. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's unfortunate because then both holiness and holiness and spirituality both end up getting confused. Um, yeah. Do you have, I, I want to ask, put you on the spot here, and, and I didn't ask you this before, so this is right off the top of your head. Did you have a book in your own life that was particularly helpful for you in your sanctification or in your understanding of holiness? We, we recommend this book. It may not be for everyone, but but we do commend it for sure. And then the books he mentioned, I think, are, are all really, really good. But uh, did, do you have one that was sort of a go-to for you, maybe early in your Christian life in particular? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, it was a book by Thomas Watson. Entitled Very readable Puritan, by the way. Yeah, but maybe the most readable yep. Puritan. Agreed. I mean, pretty he could be kind of flowery at times, but it's it's really a it's a beautiful language. Yep. Uh, his book, Taking Heaven by Storm, where he's he's it's really a series of expositions on Jesus's words that you know that that the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by storm, and his his interpretation of that. Which can be disputed by modern commentators, though I, though Herman Ritterboss actually agrees with that older puritanical interpretation that this is actually a picture of something like Israel invading the land of Canaan. That mm. to, in fact, make a place a holy dwelling and a holy habitation, there has to be what, what Watson calls this holy violence, mm. where we are throwing out the illegitimate inhabitants of the realm. Uh, and and it's interesting when he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and you think to yourself, yes, but surely the kingdom of heaven will prevail against those, you know, mm-hmm. assailing. And it says, and the violent take it. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, um, that that book and I tend to I still favor that older interpretation. And I, I go to Ritterboss for my more recent support of that interpretation from the Matthew passage. But heaven taken by storm, if nothing else, it's it's a great 
puritanical kick in the pants, so to speak. <laughs> we need that. Uh, yeah, we do need that for for being busy and aggressive in this in this uh, mortifying sin, uh, and it picks up uh, very, those puritanical themes of mortification. But but this one, uh, anyhow, was special to me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, for our listeners, if you'd like to. Win a copy of Michael Allen's book, Sanctification. You can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a a link there for you to enter to win a copy of this book. We'd love to send you a free copy of it. We're also grateful for all of you who are listening. We'd encourage you to recommend it to anyone whom you think might benefit from this program. And also, if you're able to to donate, uh, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals depends on the gifts of, of listeners like you. So if you can donate, you can do that on placefortruth.org. Uh, there's a donate button there or alliancenet.org. And, and as always, uh, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>